2: You're listening to this week's excerpt from the Dear Prudence podcast. To get the full-length, members-only version every week, join Slate Plus at slate.com slash prudipod.
1: Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear, Prudence. Dear, Prudence. Dear Prudence. Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you.
2: Hello, and welcome back to The Dear Prudence Show once again. And as always, I am your host, Daniel Ortberg. With me in the studio this week is Julia Furlan, a Brooklyn-based journalist and podcast maker who is trying to learn how to hold a grudge. Julia, welcome.
0: Hi, Danny. How are you?
2: I am doing well. Uh, You can breathe again in the Bay Area, which is very exciting.
0: Oh, my God. I'm so I'm relieved to hear that. Yes. Although, of course, by the time
2: everyone hears this, there may have been several new and exciting natural disasters that I don't know about yet, in which case this may no longer be true. But today,
0: look, it's here. You can come here. It's
2: fine. It's great. It's Uh, raining. It's pouring rain. It's uh, great, though. I'm I don't believe you. I don't trust you. I don't believe that the East Coast is safe ever. Um, How's it going? How's the how are your grudge holding abilities shaping up?
0: Look, I just think I have to learn how to do it better because I am I feel a little bit like fishbowly where I'm like, "Oh, oh, it's fine. Everything's fine. I like things. I like people. I have this like extreme impulse to want to please and want to um sort of like forget any sort of grudges." Mm-hmm. And I'm working on putting some walls up cuz guess what? Boundaries are good and also you know, it's it's a self protective measure. Ultimately, mm-hmm. well, I hope that you're able to find the perfect balance and
2: only hold the most <laughs> appropriate uh, and healthy of grudges. I, look, that's I mean, it's the dream. Let's let's hope that that is, as you say, the dream. So, um, with that in mind, uh, I this is a this is a long first question. I'm going to take the first question. I'm going to take this burden off of your shoulders. I tried to edit this down a lot, and there's still probably more than there needs to be but so uh, first letter is essentially kind of season one of the L word which is weird because I just saw wreck it Ralph Two, Ralph breaks the internet and that was also kind of season one of the L word which I was not expecting it looks so good it was good unlike season one of the L word
0: Um. (laughs)
2: Which is a terrible. Is this secretly
0: an L word recap podcast? Is it just like slowly going to turn into an L word recap podcast? I've I've only watched
2: like twelve shows, um, and so I keep going back to the same wells. Okay, the point is, the point is, I I I can get through this letter. So the subject is race and egg donation. Dear Prudence, my partner and I are lesbians in a happy, committed relationship, and have a four-month-old baby boy who is an absolute delight. My partner is about a year and a half older than me, and so the decision for her to have the first baby was pretty straightforward. We're both in our mid-30s. I'll go next, and all along, the assumption was that we'd use different sperm donors from the same bank. The reason for using different donors is that my partner is black and I'm white. She'd had a white donor, and we always said that I'd pick a black donor so our kids would reflect our mixed-race partnership. My partner isn't especially light or dark-skinned, but our son looks surprisingly white. No one particularly cares. He's a wonderful baby. See, above. But we're all a little surprised just because we thought he'd look more black than he does. We're beginning to think about the process for me, and I'm feeling pretty strongly like I want to use the same donor she did. Our son is great, and I think it would be nice for the siblings to feel like they have this bond between them, although, of course, I know they'll feel this way even if they have different donors. The aspect that makes me feel a little icky is that I doubt I'd feel this way if our son looked more black. If that were the case, I think I'd still feel pretty committed to the idea of having a black donor, because if our first child was seen by the world as black, I'd want the same to be true for our second. I don't know how to bring this up with my partner. We're very open and honest with each other, and in some ways I think she'd be happy, but there's something obviously gross to me about assessing our son's blackness and feeling like it fails to meet some standard of discernibility. I know it's a conversation to be had further down the road, but there's really no way around it that if we use the same donor, a factor in that decision will have been our son's complexion. I feel like what started out as a sweet impulse to have a bond between children with different mothers has taken on racial overtones that make me deeply uncomfortable. I'm not asking you to resolve me of my racially problematic thinking, but I would love to have your thoughts to possibly lend some clarity to this dilemma. So uh, I'll start by saying I-, I am really glad that you are interrogating this desire within yourself um, and that you are trying to figure out how much you want to check yourself before bringing this up with your partner. That is good. So a,
0: a-, a point there. I totally agree. Yes, and I- Yes. I also
2: think one thing that will help is it's okay to just say racist um, instead of racial overtones or racially problematic. Um, don't be afraid of the word racist when what you're dealing with is racism. Um, it doesn't mean you have to throw yourself in the garbage. Uh, it doesn't mean that you are an irredeemably bad person. Um, but what is coming up for you is racism and you are dealing with racist thoughts. Uh, And it will only help to be as honest and frank with yourself about that before deciding what you should or could do next. So maybe even just say it out loud. I'm having racist thoughts about my future children. And that might help take some of the kind of like big overwhelming fear of like, I can't acknowledge certain things. Um, It's racist. That's not okay. Um, But it's okay to acknowledge that it's racist.
0: Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And I also think that there is a... There are going to be a lot of conversations that you're going to have about race. Um, Your son is black and whether or not you uh, see him in a certain way or society sees him as a certain way, he his mom is black and society is racist. So you're going to have to have a lot of conversations about race throughout his life. And it's really important that you get started on that and thinking about it and processing and reading and sort of like doing your homework about this feeling that you're having. And I would recommend that you don't really um put put that processing feeling on your partner, which is, I think, what you were getting at, Danny. where it's important that, especially if you have a four-month-old and this person is, you know, who knows, like in the cloud of having a baby and all of this stuff, I think that you should do some processing and learning on yourself and reading about it uh, before bringing this up to your partner and then figure out how to have a really clear conversation about that.
2: Right. So I I also just want to point out that, like, um, one of the things that you have learned is that it is possible to be black and look a lot of different ways. It is possible to be mixed race and look a lot of different ways. It's not always, like... uh, I I think maybe you kind of went into this with this, this thought of, like, I will be able to predict what my child will look on, like, exactly based on how, like, both his mother and his sperm donor look. And that's not really how life works. Um, people often look different than how you might expect. And so I think the, the thing to ask here is, the, the, the thing that will kind of, I think, give you a clue about how to act next is you did not have this thought earlier about, oh, I'd really like for the kids to actually share um, uh, like uh, at least one genetic parent. That didn't come up until you had the thought, hey, we might be able to get away with two white kids here. And that, I think, is the thought that you need to sit with, like this came up when you realized, well a- a- as long as they were both going to be black and it felt sort of inevitable, that's one thing, but if we could if we could get away like i I think that's what that thought is. again, it might feel a little uncomfortable or a lot uncomfortable to acknowledge that, but I think that's the reason this came up is like, well, shoot wouldn't wouldn't it just be easier and and the kind of the implication there is like then we could have two white children. You wouldn't have two white children. You would have one white child and one mixed race black kid who, at least when he was four months old, looked more white than otherwise with no guarantee of what the rest of his life is going to look like. And that kid would never grow up white and would, in fact, I think inevitably come up against this dynamic in ways that were really painful both for that child and for your black partner.
0: Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. It's really tricky and it has to do with the choice. The choosing is the hard part. Like, it's hard to choose this kind of thing in general. I feel like it's a an unusual situation in, you know, in in the grand scheme of human evolution. Maybe it feels like a little bit different to be able to, like, choose the particular kind of child you're going to have so like i'm i'm throwing you some empathy there but like you are going to have to grapple with this anyway and i think that grappling with it is the the way to go the way to start yeah so
2: i I think before you have any kind of conversation with your partner about which of you is going to carry the next child what donor you use um to to Really spend a little time with, and maybe you'll write this out. Maybe you'll talk about this with another trusted, like family member or friend. Um, maybe you'll see a therapist about this. Um, but to kind of say, um, you know, what do I do with the part of myself uh, that saw the black side of my family as a sort of like obligation to? discharge if and once it felt like we tried it but could then get away with something else i wanted to to do that like well we tried it but now let's go back to the default let's go back to me um and you know spend a little time with that because you don't want to you don't want to you want to be open and honest with your partner but you also don't want to lead with um something that could potentially be like really really damaging so um yeah, I, I think the most important thing here is to realize um, there's not a version of your life where you don't raise a black mixed-race child because that's what you have right now. At four months old, he looks... I, I, again, I the, that's, it's just so tricky even to say stuff like looks white or looks black because there's so right. many different ways to do that. Um, I, I, I'll just say... Um, How he looks right now may not be how he'll be received through the world throughout his life. He will always have a black mother. Um, That will always be uh, part of his life story. Um, Think about how do you help co-parent the child you already have so that, you know, his birth mother is not the only black woman in his life. Um, that he sees lots of different kinds of black people in his life on a daily basis, that he is loved and supported and nurtured in his black identity. And if that's your focus, I I think questions about what donor you do or don't use for your next child will naturally feel less, um, pressing because there won't be, Hey, we can kind of like get away with having a mostly white family. Um, Because you couldn't do that if your priority was really about um, celebrating, nurturing, and supporting his lackness.
0: Absolutely. I also think that, like, focusing a little bit less on what he looks like and a little bit more on, like, who he is and who he's going to be and the values that you want to bring him up in is a really helpful thing. I I know that there's like a lot of focus on, oh, your baby looks like this. And people say really weird things to you in public. There's like a public aspect of having a baby and being a parent that can be really emotional and really, you know, a process to go through. But um, ultimately, you need to figure out who this kid is going to be and who their sibling is going to be. And um have some really tough and honest conversations both with yourself and with your partner about that because it's not going to be over <laughs> it's not going to be over now it's not going to be over when you choose a sibling you know you're going to have a lot of these questions and these conversations throughout his life right right so you know
2: if it were simply about you would like both of your kids to have the same sperm donor talk to your partner about the possibility of her carrying the next child she may be open to it um but w- if it's well, I'll do it, but I I, I want to use the same white sperm donor. I mean, part of what that would mean would be like saying, like then then your 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 son would kind of grow up, at least in some way, knowing like when we saw we could take a different route, we went like it, it's just um. Just because you think right now the world is going to treat him as white does not mean that that's going to be what happens. And regardless of how the world does or doesn't treat him, you don't have a white child. So this fantasy you have right now of kind of having two white kids, it's not real. Um,
0: nah, nah, no. it's yeah. over. It's it's not real. Yeah. It's not, it's not going to happen. And you're going to have to grapple with it no matter what. Yeah. And so
2: it's good right now, by the way, that you can recognize it's gross and racist to be kind of assessing a four-month-old blackness and thinking about what you can get away with as a result of that. That's really good. That's the first step towards um, fighting and resisting that racism within yourself. So I I think just the the way ahead is to ask yourself, how do I uh, resist and challenge my own racism today as the co-parent of a black mixed-race child? And if that's the question you're asking yourself every morning, that's going to help.
0: Yeah, I really liked your first tip, which was just saying racist uh, and really calling it what it is, because that will give you some it may seem really scary, but it will give you something to push off of instead of saying things like racial overtones or whatever. If you just call racism what it is and you start there, um it will become something real that you can grapple with instead of sort of like an unusual overtones sort of like sidesteppingy thing it might be it might be scary but it will be more honest which is really what you're going for and what you need to go for for your son yep yep and just like if you love your partner
2: love her blackness if you celebrate your partner celebrate her blackness don't treat it as something that you think you might be able to opt out of passing on to your children that's really Racist. Even if you love her, you can like you can both love this black woman and be racist. Both of those things can be true. So if there's a part of your brain that's like, I don't understand this. I love my wife, and I'm a lesbian. So obviously, you know, lesbian cancels out racism. You know, like how can this be? Just know. Um, nothing cancels what that. What kind racism. of math are you doing? Yeah. Um, well, you know, like that popular Twitter meme of like a white arm with like a little wound that says racism on it, and then a little bandaid that says queerness being slapped over it. It's a thing. It's it's true. It does. Yeah
0: it doesn't behoove you to not deal with this now because it's going to be with you forever. The the wound of racism with the bandaid of queerness is like, in fact, like something that's going to grow and be all over you. You need to deal with this now uh, so that you can do a really good job raising your kids and treating your partner um, as, you know, loving your partner in a full way, which I really loved that you said.
2: Yeah. And so I'll just kind of close with like, I don't want to say like, it's okay to call it racist as a way of sort of saying, it's fine. Don't worry. You're going to be racist. You're bound to be racist. Nothing to be done about it. That's not what I mean. I just mean that um, it's real. It's everywhere. It's baked into our society. You are white. You grew up white in America. Of course you were racist. That's what happens. That's the point. And being able to acknowledge that as not a surprise is the first step to doing the work. So it's not like, don't worry about it. Of course, no big deal. Just be racist and keep it quiet. Keep it under wraps. Um, that's not what I mean. It's like, this is never going to go away for you or your wife or your children. Um, and it will only help you to name racism in yourself when you find it so that you can, you know, work to, to fight it. Um, and good luck. It's hard work and it's worth doing. And it's worth doing for the sake of your family. So, totally, totally different family problem coming up next. I'm
0: so excited to
2: hand this one over. I love this one. It's so great.
0: Okay. All right. Subject. Should I take my family sailing for a year? Dear Prudence, I'm married and have two kids in grade school. My wife and I have good jobs and live in a city we really like. We're not as wealthy as some of our neighbors, but in the grand scheme of things, we are very lucky. However, when I look at the next eight to 10 years with us working full time and our kids growing up and with luck moving out, I fear that we are missing this precious opportunity to really spend time as a family, not just evenings and weekends and vacations. I want to have a unique extended experience that will give us lasting memories together, give them valuable life lessons and overall have a lot of fun. Lately, this has taken the shape of a dream to put us all on a sailboat for a year and explore part of the world. I have sailing skills, and I'm confident that I can mitigate the risks to an acceptable level for this kind of trip. My wife is supportive, parentheses, even if she doesn't have the same level of enthusiasm as I do. That's key. We would homeschool the kids for that year. The thing is, we are not wealthy. While we could pull this off, it would require spending a good portion of our nest egg and taking a year off of work with no guarantee of where we would work afterwards. Yes, I realize how ridiculously fortunate we are even to be able to daydream about this kind of experience, and I know gainful employment is not something to take for granted. But I also know that it's all too easy to spend years on a professional treadmill, and I worry that when I look back, I will always wonder what if, as my kids grow up and go on to live their own lives of independence. We would have more money for college or retirement, but we wouldn't have had the experience." I know this is not the kind of predicament or conflict or dilemma you normally focus on, but I know there are many parents out there feeling similarly torn about their fleeting time with their kids and dreaming of life experiences and potentially big changes to focus on the family. It's very hard to weigh the pluses and minuses and opportunity costs of a dream like this, and we would love to know what you think. Oh, boy. You know, (laughs) there's something charming about this. I agree. I agree. Um, there, I mean, I feel like, like the other letter, there's just there's a lot of layers with families. There's just like a lot of people to think about. One time in college, I made a sim for everybody on my college dorm floor. And they were all dead within like a week. because oh It's hard to manage a lot of people's expectations and a lot of people's um, needs and whatnot. Um, so I just feel like this is a, a like, you know, varsity level Sims game. It's there are a lot of people's lives to consider. So, uh, what do you think these Sims should be thinking about? <laughs> okay, first of all, um, I appreciate this idealist dream. I think that what I see in this, um, what I see in this letter, is a lot of sort of like thinking about my dream for my kids and my family. And I would encourage this letter writer to really open up a little bit and and think about it from other people's perspectives in the family i think that that would be valuable the only uh sense for what other people would think about sailing for a year that we get is this small parenthetical even if she doesn't have the same level of enthusiasm as i do which i mean
2: that could mean a couple different
0: things exactly it could mean anything so we don't really know um and I, i i mean i appreciate this sort of like Swiss Family Robinson aspect of it. It seems like uh, a really like fascinating, fascinating adventure, and a break from the like capitalist hellscape of the quote unquote professional treadmill. I I like. I feel you. We're working really hard. We have a precious small amount of time to spend with our family. So like, I totally hear you on that front. I don't know. What do you think, Danny? Yeah, I, I
2: I could read this with a couple of different lenses. Um like one of which is genuinely like man life is a rich tapestry i would not want to you know i get boat sick um i would not want to have spent a year sailing with my family as a child um i could definitely read this in the sense of like this is something you want to do and you are trying to um uh Avoid any conversations about what the other people in your family want to do by kind of framing it as, this is the antidote to modern life, this might be our only opportunity, we're going to make memories, so that you can kind of pressure everybody else into getting on board. In which case, there are a lot of ways to have unique experiences and make lasting memories and teach your kids valuable life lessons that don't involve like dragging them along with your midlife crisis. That's like the least generous way I could look at this. and and to also take into account the fact that like sailing around the world for a year, a lot of things could go very, very wrong. I know, man. You could that's like a physically life-threatening possibility. Yeah, it's pretty dangerous. I, I mean that's not to say that like, oh man, like 50-50 you won't make it back, but like you say that you have sailing skills. Sailing around the world for a year, you would need a lot of sailing skills. And my worry is, again, that this is a kind of dilettante fever dream midlife crisis um, with more confidence than actual experience and that you would be putting your family through a lot of discomfort and potentially danger um, in order to fulfill like your Long John Silver fantasy. Um, so I-, I would say, you know, Really interrogate this impulse. Ask yourself a lot of difficult questions. Talk to somebody who has sailed around the world for a year. Ask them realistically. Mm, all of those five people. Yeah. I'm, well, there's, there's. Again, it's not like, not that nobody's ever done it, but it's pretty big. Ask them how much it cost them. Uh, ask them how much work it was. Ask them how many times their lives felt endangered. Um, ask them what you know they wish they'd known before they did it. Ask a number of them um, ask people who have taken children boating around the, shipping around the world. Sorry, I don't even know, like, the ship terminology. Like, do a lot of research. And just, like, I'm confident I can mitigate the risks to an acceptable level. What do you consider an acceptable level? And, like, you're not Poseidon, god of the sea. Like, you can't just say, like, oh, don't worry, I've solved the ocean's dangers. Like, I... There's just going to be some okay, danger.
0: Yeah,
2: you like and like Odysseus of all people. Like at least he didn't take Telemachus <laughs> and Penelope with him. Like most of those no. guys died.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I think that like you should be if you are going to be trapped on a sailboat with your children and your wife for a year, mm-hmm. you are going to have to establish some like phenomenal communication skills so that everybody doesn't actually murder each other. Yeah, and. I think that I don't see a lot of those communication skills coming through in this letter so far, right. which it seems like a rough draft idea. We're at the beginning of the journey. So, like, I'm I'm going to give you that benefit of the doubt. But I do think that, like, you really are going to have to consider this from other people's perspectives. Um, and, you know, I think it's it's you. You say at the end of the letter. um, that it's hard to, like, see the pluses or minuses on this. And you're 100% right. You could come back and not find a job so quickly. Your kids could... Only some of you could come back. (laughs) (laughs) You could have adopted and trained a beautiful fish that is now your, like, your whole life. You, like, bring this fish around that's trained and, like, you have, like, a friendship and it's a whole other story. But, like, you will never know how much this is going to change your life. And you should... Do a lot of thinking about that. I I'm not saying that it's impossible. I also think that like there's got to be some sort of like uh, training wheels version of this that you could try out uh, before the year long. Like a year is a long time to do one thing. Right. Like take a week off of work. I know, man. Yeah. And like, mm, let's see. Could you? Could you instead of a year long sailing trip, could you do it? for a summer vacation once. And then if everybody's like really into that sailor life, do that. I, I I don't know what kind of sabbatical options you could have at your job. There are a lot of things that if you feel safety and security in your job and your wife also feels that, maybe there's a way to do this not for a full year where you're really risking everything, right. but something where you will have a job when you get back, where you where you won't be risking quite as much.
2: Yeah. And I would say do your research right now. That's not just with the goal of hurrying past any questions so that you can get what you want. Um, My fear here is that again, I, I know we've had some laughs. My fear here is that you are really excited about this idea. And as a result, you're not really listening to the rest of your family. Um, and maybe they are all on board. Maybe it will end up being kind of amazing, and that would be really, really fabulous. If that is the case, it will not be damaged by your pausing and doing a lot of really thorough investigation and asking a lot of careful questions and doing a dry run, or a wet run, I guess. Um, Especially because uh, like that, that bit about, my wife is supportive, doesn't have the same level of enthusiasm, and then this quick throwaway line of, we would homeschool the kids for that year. Be very very honest with yourself about how much work this is going to take. And ask also like right now in the comfortable home that you live in with the two jobs you both have, who does most of the work at home right now? Is it you or is it your wife? And with that little bit about, by the way, we'll homeschool all of our kids for a year. Who's going to do that? Is it going to be you, apparently the only person in the family who knows how to sail? Or is it going to be you get to sail around the world for a year while your wife gets to become an unpaid teacher?
0: That's my yeah. fear. Who's trapped on the
2: ocean. Yeah. Exactly. And with with a husband who's like, isn't this exciting? And she's like, not really. I'm just like teaching our kids while you get to have your boat fantasy. And your enthusiasm has made it such that I don't really feel like I'm allowed to have problems with it or else I'm ruining, like, the magic year that we get to have before we're swallowed up by the, like, suburban treadmill.
0: Yeah, I also want to recognize one more thing here that, like, I think is part of watching our children grow up and part of being a grown-up yourself is having this sort of, like, prolonged nostalgia about... The changes that are happening it feels like you feel like as soon as your children have left grade school they will forever forget you and they will be gone and you will never be able to create memories and blah 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 and there's there's some truth to that there's there's a reason why we are nostalgic it is sure. a real thing that you will not be able to go back in time and i just want to and i can imagine that being a parent is is like really going deep in that nostalgia but i think that um there are a lot of precious opportunities, to use your terms, that are not, you know, like like you have a precious opportunity every day to spend time with your kids and your family. And, okay, it sucks that you have to go to a job. It sucks that they have to go to school and everything. But, like, you may be having the precious moments now without having to be, um, like, you know, trapped on a boat in the middle of the ocean, there's yeah. you, you can you can have appreciation and love and regard for the opportunities that are in front of you right now and also dream about this big thing. Yeah.
2: So do your research. Get really good feedback from your wife and your kids who this would affect pretty significantly. Um Don't let your and sailors. Yeah. And sailors, people who have done this. Do a dry run. Um Don't. Let your enthusiasm cause you to ignore or paper over your wife's concerns, um, and ask her what she's enthusiastic about. Like, if you guys are really potentially thinking like both quitting your jobs and taking like a big year, what would some of her dreams look like? Are they the same as yours? Would you be willing to do her dreams? Like, yeah, yes, that is a very important question. You know, maybe, maybe her dream is just like. What if we had some adventures at home and you didn't sign me up for a year of being like the swabber of the decks on a boat?
0: Right. Absolutely. And who knows what your kids are going to want? You know, like they might be unable to play Pokemon or whatever it is that they are really, really into. They might, you know, like, sure, being on a ship for a year is like a very remarkable experience. And they will not get that on land living in a house. But, like, do your kids get boat sick? You don't know that, you know? Like,
2: or maybe, maybe you do. Maybe you just haven't mentioned it, but like, definitely do a test run, do a serious test run. Um, do for a at least lot. a
0: month. Yeah. Um,
2: <laughs> there's a lot of ways to address a sort of vague dissatisfaction and dreaming about family togetherness that do not involve quitting your jobs and going on a boat for a year. Um, please write back. I want to hear So much about, I want to hear from your wife. I want to hear from your kids. Yes. I definitely, Mm. what would you call the boat? Um, (laughs) Lots more to be done here. Lots, lots, lots more to be done here. Also, if anyone who listens to this podcast has a lot of, I guess, naval experience and has any like suggestions, please write in and let us know what you think. All right. Next letter. That one's
0: all you. You get to read that one. Ooh, okay, okay. Subject, no kids, but why? Dear Prudence, I've somewhat recently re-entered the dating world, and I'm struggling to find a good response to questions about whether or not I want kids. A simple answer for me is, I'm not going to have kids, but that seems to invite more questions. Technically, I can't have kids because I had a sterilization procedure. If I just say I can't have kids, I hear all about how my date knows someone who struggled with fertility but was able to conceive, and I don't want to share my particular situation with someone I just met and open up a new line of questioning. I don't want to say I don't want kids because my situation is much too complicated for that to be the truth. For a very personal reason, I came to the difficult conclusion decision that I was not going to have kids. That was very painful for me, but I've accepted it and moved on. And I've been able to do that by not dwelling on it as a loss, but as a change in the direction I thought my life would take. But saying I don't want kids seems like a misrepresentation of my truth. And telling my story is not something I'm ready to do on a date or with pretty much anyone. So what do I say when the topic comes up, often very early on in the dating process, that gets the point across, doesn't invite more questions, and feels honest? Whew.
2: I mean, I feel kind of open-ended here. I think, you know, if this is the first or a second date and you're just getting to know somebody and you mostly just want to communicate, like, if all you want to do in that moment is, like, I want to communicate to this person that if they are looking to have children, I am not the one. Um, Right. But I also don't know them well enough to know whether or not I really want to get into the kind of painful backstory about why. I think it's certainly fine to just say you don't plan on it. Um, you can just say, nope, I plan on not having kids, um, which actually sounds a little better than I don't plan because that kind of makes it sound like you're open to talking uh, about other points of view. Um, so I, I would yeah. say I, I plan on not having kids um, and maybe having just a, a, a quick line of like, it's not possible for me and I've considered my other options and I've decided that it's okay for me not to. Um, and kind of leave it at that
0: that that's i I think that would be my preference what about you i feel like there is a certain shrug that you can do that's a very uh easy social move that um doesn't invite more questioning that puts up a a small boundary and also doesn't really like further the the conversation in a way that would make you feel uncomfortable because i hear you that you want to be true to yourself but like we're talking first date stuff. It's a, a lot of first dates are artifice and sort of performance. So I would say you could say something like, yeah, kids are not really my thing. Consider it like a hobby that you're not going to take up in the future is one idea. And I also think that you could you could just say something like, I I don't plan on having kids and I, I don't really feel like talking about it, honestly, or If you have a second preamble to the to the question, to the answer, I guess, where you are sort of establishing your boundary and saying, like, "Eh, I don't feel like talking about it, really. That is signal enough that it's not it's not first date fodder and you don't have to talk about it. Yeah. And I
2: think, yeah, there's that kind of thought of like, well, because it can affect whether or not somebody wants to be in a relationship, it is totally fair game on a date. Like, sure, it is totally okay for people to ask because they are sussing out potential partners on that basis, but it does not mean that you actually have to give somebody your life story about it. Like, as long as you're giving them a clear answer, you don't have to go into more detail, and if it feels really painful to say, I just don't want to when that's not actually true, you don't have to do that. Yeah. Basically, if your question is just like, oh, I'm worried that that's a slight misrepresentation and it's just it's strictly a question of like, am I being ethical in giving a short version of the answer? You're totally fine. You can absolutely say that. You're not. Yes. You're not being a liar if you end up getting into a more serious relationship with this person and later you feel safe disclosing like, hey, actually, here's a little bit more about the history behind why I'm not having kids. You can do that, but you don't need to go through that with everybody who wants to like buy you a cob salad.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. And there are like there are a lot of ways to have kids and there are a lot of um like kid paths in the world that uh are not necessarily represented in this particular story that you're telling. So I would say like, you know, um don't don't worry about that. So like I I feel like it's it's fine to just be sort of like clear about your boundaries and unapologetic about your position on this without having to give too much exposition until much further on in the dating process. That's fine. It's your boundary. You can keep it however you like it. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call, quitgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.
2: All right. This next letter has been, like, keeping me up because I can just <laughs> hear that
0: voice in my head, and I hate it. Hate oh, my it. gosh. Really? Yes. I oh. find this question to be like the... Oh, this one is really tough for me, actually. I'm like... I don't know. I I, I like... Yeah. Okay, I, good. We'll, I feel... Okay. We'll pick it okay. apart.
2: The subject is plausibly deniable harassment. Dear Prudence, I recently changed jobs after almost 20 years at the same company. One of the ways I got over my fear of starting over was by reassuring myself that I knew some people at the new company, including a guy known for years just from attending industry conferences. We weren't close, but I figured it would help. I took the job, and he has been a big help in getting acclimated, but I'm very uncomfortable with the level of familiarity he uses with me. I had to ask him a couple of times not to call or text my personal phone, which he finally stopped doing. But now whenever we speak on the phone, always about work matters. There's honestly nothing else going on here. He begins the call using what I can only describe as a sexy voice. It sounds like he just rolled over in bed, opened his eyes and said, hey you, in that let's have another go kind of way. You know what I mean. It's a voice of intimacy. It's super inappropriate and makes me very uncomfortable. But how can I ask him to stop without making everything weird? I'm in a senior position to him and he doesn't report to me, thank God, but I still have to work with him and still need his help on things. What should I do? So my 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 thought, oh, okay. So was the reason it felt tricky to you was because you weren't sure if that was on purpose? Because my read on this is it's totally on purpose, and he knows what he's doing. 100%. Ooh, really? Yeah.
0: I Yeah, I think that I I had, I like waffled on the, is it on purpose? But the thing that I don't waffle on is that if it's making you uncomfortable, he's making it weird. There's no, there's no intention. The intention doesn't matter. Yeah, exactly. It's already weird if he's like making it weird for you. So that's, I'm very clear on that. I'm just not sure. Like, I I just, you know, I, I don't know. Some people have weird positions that they talk on the phone i you know i'm a podcast producer i listen to a lot of people's voices and in a lot of moments people sound one way but they you look at them in the in the moment and they're they're totally not that way you know what yeah. i mean
2: yeah and i don't want to make it sound that like anytime somebody hears a particular charge that that's always 100 percent intentional i guess i just feel like he didn't used to do this when they worked with different companies then the letter writer switched jobs he suddenly then started calling and texting her on her personal phone. Sorry, I'm assuming the letter writer is a woman. Um, it's possible that they're not. Um, started uh, calling and texting the le- the letter writer on their personal phone. Kept doing it at least a couple of times after being told not to. That like to me, I, I to me, if somebody says please don't use this phone. Yeah, that's just not a good sign. When it's a guy who's already steamrolled past a couple of attempts to, like, do a pretty easy thing to uh, adhere to a boundary, my guess is he does not, for example, use this tone when he's talking to, like, his boss. I bet when his boss calls, he's not like, hey there. Sorry, that was not a sexy voice. I'm gonna (laughs) try that again. He's not like, hey there. Like, I just... I think again. I don't think he's necessarily thinking like I really want to creep the letter writer out. But I do think he is trying to communicate like you and I have a fun, sexy vibe. Maybe you and I have a fun, flirty vibe. And if the letter writer doesn't like it, that's okay to to address.
0: Right. The letter writer is clear on this. The, the however you feel, letter writer, it is a hundred percent that is the thing. And if you are feeling uncomfortable at, with this person bulldozing several boundaries. Um. Yeah, I had forgotten about the he he like I, I had to ask him several times not to call or text my personal phone several times is a lot of times to have to be like, yo, not on this phone. And that's not, not hard. That's not hard to remember.
2: Like it is not customary. At work, to like, unless that's the culture, uh, it it is not difficult to remember. Ah, I shouldn't text you on your private line at home. Uh, I should get in touch with you in your office where you work and do your job. So, you know, the fear is like because it is a vague thing. If I name it and address it, it becomes weird. It's a of all. It's already weird, right? Like you already feel uncomfortable. So it's more like. I'm worried about how to bring this up because he could be able to say, I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, And I think the key there is you don't have to get trapped into intention. You don't have to say, like, hey, I think you're doing this. Do you agree? You can just say, like, hey, when we begin conversations, uh, I I would like for you to just address me by my name and get right down to the thing that we're talking about.
0: Totally. And I think that, you know, maybe part of you questioning on this cuz it seems like you have a you, you know you're like you're a senior to him and you're doing you you're doing everything right i feel like after changing if you change jobs after almost 20 years at the same company that's a really everything is new right now you know so so i can imagine that this is sort of like calling into question your usual like trip wires that you might have had after 20 years at a company where you maybe knew more people and you were like really certain on your instincts but um don't let that cloud your instincts in this situation follow them because they are spot on
2: yeah and you can also just say like the next time you guys get on the phone and he opens with like hey you you can just say hey that makes me uncomfortable please don't do that and that's it. That's all you got to say. You don't have to like prove that he's doing it on purpose. You can just let him know it makes you uncomfortable because then once he knows it's going to be easy to stop um, or it should be rather so that that will help you figure out whether or not you actually do need to escalate by talking to HR or, or, or going over his head. Um, but, you know, I, I think the magic of just when you talk to me like that, it makes me uncomfortable. Please stop. And then just letting that sit there um, I know the fear of, like, making it weird will feel big in that moment, but it's already weird, and all the weirdness is falling on you. Let the weirdness fall on him for a minute. Even, like, best-case scenario for him... That it is unintentional. He didn't realize he was lapsing into a really like sexual sounding tone and he's mortified. This is good information for him because what if he talked like this to a client and they also felt uncomfortable? It's okay to not mean something badly, but for someone to say it makes me uncomfortable. If he's a good guy, he will hear that and he will say, oh God, I'm so sorry. He will feel pretty cringy for maybe the next couple of days and he will stop and that will have been good for him. Um, And if he doesn't, then you're you're doing him a favor. Yeah. If he doesn't, then you know this is actually part of a pattern. He's trying to see what he can get away with, and you do need to escalate it. So we're actually doing kind of okay for time. And we do have a voicemail that just came in. Do you, sorry, like, do you have somewhere to be? We can let you go.
0: I'm thrilled. Are you kidding me? It's pouring rain out. I don't want to go outside. All right. Well, well
2: this you is know, great. stay inside. Stay cozy. Phil's going to press play. And uh, <laughs> I'm going to take a second to blow my nose because this cold is not going anywhere.
1: Okay. Hi, Prudence. My question is, I came out as a trans man last December. My husband has always been supportive if asked, but mostly he just leaves me to grow by my own design. Um, my transition has led me to appear more masculine. He's been having an increasingly hard time. We're on the cusp of a lot of changes in our life. Uh, a bunch of our friends moved out of state and we're planning to follow them in the spring. Hopefully I just started a new career. We just adopted a dog together. We're actually really great friends, except for when it comes to my transition. He insists he's just not into guys. Uh, He gets emotionally distant whenever he sees me in my binder or boxer briefs, and every time I try to ask him to communicate his feelings, he just gets defensive, and I can't shake the feeling that I'm basically murdering his wife, and I'm seeking counseling from a local LGBT center in a last-ditch effort to not abandon myself to the spiral of depression, I'm trying hard to suggest counseling together to help him work through his feelings or at least uh, help me understand why I can't seem to get him to be present in our marriage. And it absolutely kills me to think this could be the end. But at the end of the day, I just want to know that we did try everything we could to stay together. How do I get him to agree to counseling? Help.
2: Yeah. So, (sighs) you know, this one is so sad and so painful. Um, You know, I I feel like part of what the letter writer is asking for is like, is it okay to acknowledge what's already pretty obvious? or, Or would acknowledging what's obvious mean that we weren't doing everything we could to save our marriage? You know. I, I I don't want to be too hard on your husband here, but I'll just say that, you know, he gets emotionally distant whenever he kind of sees anything that reminds him of your transition. um, he's already made it clear that not only is he not attracted to men, you know, that that doesn't seem likely to change, you know, he's not interested in exploring that. That's not maybe gonna open up a little bit if it's you, that's that's fixed for him. um, and you know, He doesn't seem interested or willing to go to counseling with you now. um, And whenever you ask him to communicate his feelings, he just gets defensive and kind of shuts down. So, you know, when when that's your foundation and you say, I want to make sure we do everything we can to stay together, what's your husband bringing to that everything we can? And it looks like so far, nothing.
0: Yes, it's not a generous thing to be emotionally distant even if it's at the end of a relationship especially if it's at the end of a relationship and i think refusing to go to counseling looking wistfully at your binder and 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 having the, he, he's having big feelings about this it's just that he's shutting you out from them clearly you you know you're you're in touch with what he's feeling but He's refusing to communicate or be in any way, um, I I don't know, flexible, open, relationship-y. Or even just honest. Like, it it, it would be different even if he
2: were to say, I love you, I support you, I'm both happy for you and also sad because I think that your transition means that we are not sexually compatible any longer, and that's painful for me to admit. Um, But we need to be honest about it and figure out how do we move from being a married couple to friends who are either in a friendly marriage or in a friendly divorce um but he's not there he's he's doing the sort of like uh you know I'm going to say something generic about being supportive if anybody asks me but I'm also going to make it clear that you know I'm not attracted to your gender and I don't want to talk about it and I don't want to file for divorce like that's that's hard,
0: right? And that's a bummer for you to have to carry around this sort of hypocrisy, where he's probably getting, you know, he's he's like out front being like, "I'm an ally," and really, when really the truth of it is that you feel, um, in many ways, abandoned, and you feel like you're killing his wife, which is a really strong way to put it. That is is it's clear to you, you know, it's very clear to you that this pain is there, and. You know, he's he's doing this sort of hypocrisy that I, I find um, would would be hard to carry around. Right. And it's like if he can't see his way through to
2: being supportive also means being honest and clear about what you are and aren't capable of and not like staying. But in name only. Right. Like, oh, I'm staying with you, but you should know I'm not attracted to men. And I'm going to communicate nonverbally that I don't like the way that you look. And uh I'm not going to talk about my feelings is sort of like, well, then you're kind of like leaving the marriage emotionally, but leaving your body behind. Um, so, you know, I, I think the the truth is your marriage is over. And that's really sad. And um, that there's just going to be loss there. There's just going to be pain there. Um, You may not feel ready to, like, move out or file for divorce. Um, You don't have to do anything right now. But, you know, I don't think there's work you can do. I I, I don't think there's anything you can do to change that reality. And that might be freeing to be able to acknowledge, like, I could be the best guy in the world. And it wouldn't make him want to be married to me as a guy.
0: I feel like. You may not convince him to go to couples counseling, but I I have a, a friend who's going through a big relationship transition right now. And it seem and there's no divorce without communication. So, you know, it you may do some of the work that you're hoping to do in couples counseling in mediation. It might not look like um, it might not look like I'm going to couples counseling to save my marriage. It might look more like I'm going to mediation to have a happier divorce than I could otherwise. Um but like those conversations hopefully will happen and I would say to try and be open to them coming to you in in different ways than you than you imagine. Um it it might not look like okay, we're going to the principal's office, you know, like there there's a I've 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 been in this pattern before where where it's like we have to go to counseling We have to go to counseling and the person's really resistant and I empathize so much with that Sort of struggle where where you're like, dude, i'm doing all the work. I'm doing so much work right now Can we just go there? It's not you're not in trouble. You're not in the principal's office This is gonna be great for you. You're gonna love it. You know, you're we work You're gonna feel I mean, I, I don't know if that's a promise you can really make but I think that um It's a really tough position to be in—to be the partner that's saying we have to go to couples counseling, and also processing all of these feelings. Um, But I hope that you find some amount of communication, even if it's not in the way that you're imagining at this point right now. Right, and it may
2: help, like, to say, like, to to kind of start with, like, "Hey, I think it's clear that we're not going to be able to stay married." Let's talk about that. Like or or that that might feel like too big, maybe even yeah. just like my transition and the kind of marriage that we have, um they can't both exist. Uh, let's talk about that. Um or or like, you know, what does it mean for us to be in a marriage if you know you're not interested in men and I'm a man? Like something that can acknowledge the thing that you're afraid of acknowledging might be a good place to start. And like, you know, that line about I'm trying hard to suggest counseling or at least to, to help him work through his feelings, or at least help me understand why I can't seem to get to be present in our marriage. Like, th- there's nothing you can do to change two things. One is that your husband is not attracted to men, um, which is fine. And a sad, you know, uh, awful quirk of the world that you two happened to meet and fall in love and then you were able to realize that you needed to transition and that rendered you two incompatible um but the thing that he can help and can be responsible for is that he's choosing not to um make choices that can result in happiness and honesty for both of you like the fact that he's choosing to just sort of say like well i'm not in the men but end of sentence let's go to bed like um that is not something that you are responsible for there's no amount of present you could be that would make up for that like you could be the best guy on earth and if he was still just saying well you look weird good night um you, you 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 can't fix that that's him you know
0: yeah and the move that you are considering i feel like the conversation that danny and i are talking about right now where it's the sort of like hey it seems like this might not work out or, hey, you don't like, uh, you know, like let's let's like put it all on the table kind of conversation. I would have that conversation before uh, if it's possible to put it down before uh, before you put down a down payment or a uh, security deposit or, you know, that, that kind of stuff. Because, um, you know, what's great is that you have friends that are moving. Uh, but the, the move might look a little bit different than what you think it think it actually does right now. Like a lot of things might change pretty quickly. It seems like, yeah. So, um,
2: yeah. It's, it's same. It's like I, I think there's that kind of a little bit of magical thinking of like, uh, we're planning on following them in the spring. We just adopted a dog together, but your marriage is over. Like, it's over. The dog you're gonna have to find a custody agreement. The move in the spring's not gonna work out. Um, the whole great friendship thing kind of falls apart if he won't even talk to you about what he feels. And I, I don't want to be harsh because I don't want to make it sound like you have to like move out tomorrow and start your brand new life. But like, I, I think maybe if there's a part of you that thinks maybe if we do the move, maybe if we both take really good care of the dog, somehow, my husband will want to be with me. Um, I I just think that's going to be a way to make yourself feel more and more like, what can I do to make up for the fact that I'm transitioning? When in reality, you should not be with someone where your transition is something you have to apologize for.
0: Oh, yes, that's a perfect way to say it. And you, um, you know, the the, I I forgot what I was going to say because what you said was so good. I amplify 100% what you said. I mean, you know, I, I certainly get it. Um,
2: I, I, I definitely, definitely get it. And I think it can be hard and painful. And it doesn't feel easy to just say, like, it's over when it used to work. But, uh, you know, if there's no version of your husband that can see his way towards being with a guy, um, then you two will have to have the kind of friendship where you probably don't live together, you're probably not married to each other, and you don't share it all.
0: Oh, I remember what it was, which mm-hmm. is maybe you will. Maybe you will live together and be friends and have a different kind of marriage. You know, like there, there's a world where the the friendship it still exists because it seems like that is a very true thing that you have. But not without a lot of honesty and a lot of processing that he is on the hook for this thing that he's making you go through right now, which is a really bad thing. <laughs> he is doing a bad thing to you and he's going to have to reckon with that and really come to terms with that before your marriage with joint custody of the dog where you share a house and have some sort of like different uh kind of relationship than you do now that doesn't exist without him really taking responsibility and um and and understanding and apologizing for the things that he is doing to you right now that are not kind or good or or okay yeah yeah and it's just you know i i just when i see
2: something like I already feel like I'm murdering his wife. Like, the amount of guilt you are putting on yourself is huge and significant. And I think there's probably a part of you that feels like, if only there's some way I can make up for that and be good enough, I can redeem this. I can fix this. I can atone for my sin of needing to transition, which is, you know at best, something I did to my husband. And I just want to encourage you not to talk to yourself that way. Um, It is sad and just like awful and, and a shame when somebody's transition means that the sexual compatibility that they thought was present in their relationship is no longer present. But that's It's not anyone's fault. Um, It's not anything that you can take back or fix. Um, And it's not something you did to him. It's something you realized about yourself. And um, it's okay that it's hard for him, but it's not okay that he's choosing to take it out on you like this. Um, And it will be so much better for both of you. If you two can just acknowledge the sad truth um, and And for you to keep reaching out for as much help as you can get, um, so that you don't feel alone in this depression, but your transition is not an act of death that you brought upon a wife. Um, it is an act of life that you gave yourself and, um... Even if it doesn't feel this way right now, it is ultimately going to make your life so, so, so much better um, than any version of yourself where you tried to make yourself smaller or atone or make up for your transition so that your husband would talk to you again, would look you in the eye again, would find you attractive again. And I love you and I feel for you and I'm just sorry.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm like getting emotional. It's really, it's really true. It's I, that you, you said it perfectly. And I, yeah, I send you all of my love and all of my support and go and talk to whoever you can who is going to support you and make you feel whole and real and good and valid on your terms because you deserve that yeah oh julia thank you this was you know
2: a hell of an episode
0: i really feel like we've we, we you know we sailed around the world didn't we we
2: did sail around <laughs> so many worlds and
0: i'm just so 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 glad
2: that you got to come on the show and i hope we get to have you back again sometime
0: As a gigantic fan, I feel like I have fulfilled a major checklist item in my life. So thank you for sailing me through this world. Oh, sorry, I did that. That was terrible. (laughs) Anyway,
2: thank you so much for having me. Have a fabulous rest (laughs) of the day and I'll talk to you soon.
0: You too. Eat something. I will. Bye for now. (laughs) Okay. All right. Bye.
2: Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Production assistance by Taylor Simmons. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR, that's 3327, and you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short. 30 seconds, a minute, tops. Thanks for listening.